So for most of the past two months, we've been talking about becoming one and how we become one as a church with one purpose. And if we're going to do that, then, as we've learned, we're going to need to be humble and gentle and patient and loving with each other. We must focus intentionally on making our body strong. We must love each other. We must care for each other. We must support each other. But having a loving and caring, supporting congregation is not our ultimate purpose. It's necessary. It's required. It's biblical. But it is not our end goal. It is not the mission of the church to just be content loving itself. And so last week we began to pivot from what we must become as individuals and as a church to what we are called to accomplish as individuals and as a church. And we find the synthesis of our mission as individuals and as a church in three of Christ's commands. The first one, Matthew 22, 35 to 40, what's called the Great Commandment, where he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then his final commandment that he gave, often called the Great Commission, he says, go. It's the verse we heard in the video. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then just as he ascends into heaven, he tells them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So our mission is to love God, to love our neighbors as ourselves. But how do we do that? Well, he says we go to them to make them into disciples, to teach them everything he has commanded. And the order is critical because they must be a disciple first. They must be a follower first. They must put their faith in the work of Christ first before they can be taught to obey. Because we can't obey something that we don't believe in. And where are we supposed to go to do this? He says, you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And last week, as we commissioned Pastor Barry and Dawn as missionaries to Europe, where they will be overseeing over 120 other missionaries to Europe, we see the church sending itself to the uttermost parts of the world. And that is awesome. But that is just part of the mission. And that is the last part of the mission. And the American church is really, really good at that last part of the mission. In 2010, we sent 127,000 missionaries, more than any other country in the world, to foreign countries. 
But what about the other three parts of the mission? What about Jerusalem, our local community? What about Judea, our broader community? And what about Samaria, those who live near us geographically but are different from us culturally? In other words, what about Randolph and Roxbury and Denville and Rockaway and Mendham and Chester and Dover? What about Morris County? What about the immigrant communities who call our towns home? Just like the broader American church, we are pretty good at sending the church to the ends of the earth. But what about God's command to go and be the church right here? The United States sends more missionaries than anyone else in the world. But maybe you didn't know this fact. The United States also receives more missionaries than any other country in the world. In 2010, foreign countries sent 32,400 missionaries here. Why is it that the country that sends the most missionaries also must receive the most missionaries? Is it because the church has forgotten about the first three parts of the mission? The world views us as a mission field. The world views our towns and our communities as a mission field. They are sending people here to do the job that we are not doing. Perhaps we're not doing it because it's easier and it's less messy to send our money and our things and our people there instead of walking right across the street here. And that's what we've done. We've redefined mission as there, but God calls us to begin right here. The global church views our communities as a mission field. And it's time that we start viewing our communities as a mission field too. If you haven't already, you're going to be receiving a letter about our global missions program. And that letter lists six ways to get involved in missions. We should learn about it. We should pray about it. We should go. We should send. We should welcome. We should mobilize. But here's the thing. We don't get to just choose the one we like from the list. We're supposed to do all of it. And Christ calls us to do all of it beginning right here. So what's it mean to go and be the church here? Well, first, let's take a step back and ask a more basic question. What's it mean to have a mission? When you have a mission, you have a target. You have an objective. And you have a goal. And then there must be movement towards the objective and goal. You must take action towards it. You must get results. And our target is our community. And our community is largely made up of families who live here to raise their children. Families with children between the ages of 5 and 18, they make up 78% 
of our community. That doesn't mean the rest of our community that falls outside of that range is not important. We are called to reach our community. But if we are going to be successful at our mission, we must focus on the largest part of the target. Because if we don't focus on the largest part of the target, we can't ever be successful. So for example, if you've ever learned to fire any sort of weapon, then you know that when they teach you to fire, they teach you to aim at the critical mass of the target. The church of Jesus Christ is God's weapon. And God has called us to aim the church at the critical mass of our target. And our target is our community. Families with children between the ages of 5 and 18. And if we're going to hit the target, then we have to engage the target. And if we're going to engage the target, then we may have to do things that for some of us might be outside of our comfort zones. So my in-laws spent the past week with us. And I watched them interact with my son while they were here. And I watched them do all sorts of things that I am positive as they are back home in Washington this morning, they are not doing. Why? Why did they do it? Why did they spend a week doing things they would never, ever choose to do? Watching videos they would never choose to watch. Listening to music they would never choose to listen to. Because they wanted to engage him. They wanted to build a relationship with him. They wanted to share their life with him. And if our objective is to engage our community, then we must do things that are engaging to our community. If we want to engage them on Jesus-centered journeys, which is our objective, then we need to make Jesus-centered journeys engaging to them. And sometimes that may mean it's a little less engaging to us. What's it mean to be the church here? To help us answer that question, let's look at a story about a woman named Dorcas. And the story of Dor Dorcas is found in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is also the book of the actions, the movement of the apostles to accomplish their mission, to accomplish their purpose. In Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 36, we read in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which in Greek means Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. And so Peter went with them, and when he arrived... He was taken upstairs to the room, and all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. 
Peter sent them out of the room and then he got down on his knees and he prayed. And turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes. And seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers, especially the widows, and presented them to her alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. So how did Dorcas do it? How did she engage her community with the grace and the truth of Jesus? Well, it begins by saying she was always doing good and helping the poor. She was helping widows. She was engaged in her community. She knew who the people were. She knew who the people were that had needs. She noticed them. She did something for them. She met them where they were. She waded into their brokenness and into their messiness. She built relationships with them. First by meeting their physical needs and their emotional needs. And then through doing that, she gave them hope and was able to ultimately point them towards ultimate hope. Dorcas lived a life of significance for God. Dorcas was living on mission in her community. And what happened when she died? Her community noticed. Her community mourned. And in their time of need, in their time of mourning, her community turned to the church for help. They sought out Peter. Why did they contact Peter? Why did they urge Peter to come to them? Did they think he would raise her from the dead? Maybe. But there's really no evidence of that because no apostle up to this point, at least in what's been recorded for us, had ever raised somebody from the dead. So maybe they thought that, but we don't know. Did they call him so he would comfort them in their time of need, be a pastor to them, walk alongside of them? Maybe. We don't know that either. But what we do know is in their time of need, they knew they could get help from the church. And so they called for Peter and said, please come. What about our community? Would our community notice if we died? Are we a place that our community turns to in their time of need for help? Does our community even know that we're here? I don't know about you, but I have this conversation pretty frequently. It goes something like this. Oh, what church do you go to? Or for me, it's, well, what, what church do you work at? They say, oh, Bethlehem Church. Where's that? It's in Randolph. Where in Randolph? Oh, it's on, on Route 10, just west of Doverchester Road. Huh, there's a church there? Yeah, do you, do you know where the Dairy Queen is? Yeah, of course we know where the Dairy Queen is. Yeah, we're right behind the Dairy Queen. Really? There's a church there? Yeah, there's a church there. How is it that our community knows exactly where Dairy Queen is, but has no idea that we're here? 
How is it that our community knows exactly where a 500 square foot little white and red building is? But it has no idea about the 50,000 square foot building that sits right behind it. Well, first of all, because blizzards are amazing. <laughs> but are they really that much more amazing than what the church has to offer its community? It's a scary question to ask, isn't it? In the Bethlehem Weekly this past week, we published the story of Cypress Church, which is one of our sister churches in our association in California. And if you don't get the Bethlehem Weekly, you can read the current edition online and you can sign up to get it each week in your mailbox. But this story that we published tells the story about the church leadership from Cypress Church being invited to a meeting with the mayor of Cypress and a local developer. And they assumed that they were being invited to this meeting to talk about that, how they could build better relationships and partner with each other. But when they got to the meeting, weren't they surprised when what they were being asked to do was sell their building and move out of town? Because the mayor and the developer had figured out that the tax revenue they could gain by turning their building lot into homes was going to be more valuable to the community than the church. The city wanted them to move because the church was seen as expendable, irrelevant, more of a liability to the community than an asset. In the article, the pastor is quoted as saying, after that meeting, I looked around at our church's ministry and even its history. The sad reality was that we had become self-focused rather than loving our neighbors. A good number of members didn't even have an unbelieving or unchurched friend. So yes, as a church, and it seems the Jesus we served had become irrelevant. And we were left with some hard questions to ask ourselves. If we move, will the community miss us? Will our neighbors even notice? What have we done to contribute to the social cohesion of our community? And those are the questions that we need to ask ourselves. Would our community be better off if we weren't here? Would the community benefit more from this building and this property if it were not a church? Conservatively, if this building were turned into a commercial property, it would generate about $250,000 a year in tax revenue for the township of Randolph. Do we provide $250,000 a year of benefit to our community? Do we actually justify the tax exemption that we're given? If we died, who would come to our funeral and what would they say? When our community finds itself in a time of need, are we who they are turning to for help? The community Dorcas Reach turned to the church for help. And they couldn't wait to show Peter the robes and clothing that she had made them. They had stories that they wanted to tell him about her. But it wasn't the robes and the clothing that were important. It was the relationship 
that she had with them. It was the impact that she had had on their lives. It was the hope that she had given them. So my family, as many of you know, has spent a lot of time in hospitals over the years. And there's this thing about spending time in hospitals. I don't really understand it, but you get a lot of blankets. People make blankets for you. People donate blankets to the hospital that they give you. And they're nice because hospital blankets really aren't that comfortable. You get these nice blankets and they keep you warm and they serve this great functional purpose. And in our house, I kid you not, we probably have two bins full of blankets that we've received when we're in the hospital. But there's about three blankets that are always out. And those three blankets were made for us by people we know. That people who made them for us out of relationship and out of love. And if those people died, we would mourn. The rest of the blankets, I don't know who made them. I don't know where they came from. They served need at a point in time. But I wouldn't mourn them if they were gone like I would those others. You see, the relationship is the key. Our community will only miss us as much as we are engaged in relationship with our community. They will only miss us if we are engaged in making a difference in their lives. They will only miss us if we are engaged in bringing wholeness to their lives. What stories are we writing for our community to tell us about? In the fall, we looked back at decisions that our church made over the years when it found themselves in critical crossroads situations. But those decisions that they made in those crossroads situations led to stories. I was flipping through some of the old newsletters Bethlehem Star was the precursor to what we now call the Bethlehem Weekly. And in the February 1971 issue, there's an article by Tilly Bostrom, who was actually the first missionary of the church, and this was written after she returned from the field and was once again living in the church. And she told a story from Christmas of 1970. And in Christmas of 1970, the Randolph Fraternal Order of Police wanted to do something to help their community. But they didn't know exactly how to do it. And so they came to Bethlehem. And they said, will you help us reach our community? Because they knew that Bethlehem was engaged in their community. They knew Bethlehem would know how to put their resources to work in the community. And the article closes with this thought. What can Bethlehem do to reach this great mission field right on our doorstep? I really don't know, but we can pray earnestly, continually, and in faith, believing that God will lead us into his will in this matter. The community in 1970 and 71 knew that this church was on mission for. And it viewed it as a partner. It came to this church when it had needs and it needed to figure out how to address them. 
What stories are we writing as a church for a future generation to look back on? What stories are we writing that we would want our children and our grandchildren to tell about us in 46 years? Are we writing stories of mission and stories of community engagement? We're writing some. Our ESL ministry is writing good stories. Our congregants who are engaged with the local Boy Scout troop that just a few weekends ago collected over a thousand items for our food pantry are writing some pretty good stories. Our outreach to adoptive and foster families is beginning to write some really neat stories. But what stories do our foyer conversations tell? What story will our congregational meeting this afternoon tell? Are these stories that we would want being told by our children and our grandchildren? Are these examples of behavior that we would want our community to see? If our community were to actually walk through our doors and sit in our foyer, sit in our hallways, listen to our phone calls, read our emails, and sit in our meetings, would our behavior give them a picture of Christ that we would want them to have? Would our behavior and our stories draw them closer to Christ or push them further away from Christ. Our community desperately needs a better story. And our community desperately needs us to tell them a better story. Go and make disciples in Jerusalem. Go and make disciples in Randolph. Randolph, New Jersey, where life is worth living. Why? Why do they think that life is worth living in Randolph? And what are we as a church doing to make life worth living in Randolph and our surrounding towns? Does our community count on us to help make it safe and fun and a fulfilling place to live and work and play? We are the church. This is what we sang before. We are the hope on earth. We are the ones who know why life is really worth living. And that is the story we're supposed to be telling our community. That is what we get to do. That is the purpose that God has given us. But to have the privilege of doing that, then first we must see that. We must engage with them. We must build relationships with them and we must love them. Matthew 9, 35 to 37. is recorded as Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, 
but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And when Jesus said those words, he was not looking to some foreign land. No. He was looking right across the street. He was looking at the people in the line at the grocery store. He was looking to the moms and dads at the PTA meeting on Tuesday night. He was looking at the parents standing at the bus stop. He was looking at the local chamber of commerce. He was looking at the little league coaches and the community bands, the scout troops. He was looking at the community right there. And he was telling them to go and be the church right here. Because it begins right here. Our community is hurting. And we have the answer to why life is worth living. Our community needs us desperately to go and be the church. Our community is living curated, self-centered lives, driven by their preferences. They're seeking comfort and security from anything but Christ. And they're exhausted from trying to keep up the veneer of perfection. Living increasingly isolated and introverted lives because they know they can't keep up the facade. But yet they're so driven by guilt and shame that they won't give it up. And they've been telling themselves false stories of where they will find their comfort and their security for so long that they're becoming desensitized to what's even wrong with that. And it strikes me sadly that we're not so different. But we should have a better story for them. We should have the best story for them. This is what we get to do. This is what we're called to do. This is our purpose. This is our mission. To engage our community in Jesus-centered journeys. To give them a better story than the one that they are telling themselves. To give them the best possible story imaginable. And to help them understand why life is truly worth living. And if we're going to do that, then we need to start writing a different story for ourselves. The church is supposed to be a beacon of hope. This building was built right where it is. On one of the highest points in Randolph. So it could metaphorically be a beacon of hope to the community that surrounded it. There's a plaque inside the Statue of Liberty in the pedestal. A poem called the New Colossus. It says, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame. With conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gauge shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name is Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, 
your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless tempest-tossed, to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That may have once been the promise of America. But before it was the promise of America, it was the promise of the church. That is the story the church is supposed to be telling. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. This is what we were saying when we sing. We are the light of the world. We are a city on a hill. And we've got to let our light shine. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine like stars among them, like stars in the sky. We're called to lift our lamps to shine and show our community the way to the golden doors of refuge and sanctuary. Lift our lamps and show our community the way to God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Each of us was once a wretch. Each of us was once lost. Each of us was blind. But if we've placed our faith in the work of Christ, then now we can see. Now we get to see God's perspective. We get to see the people around us with God's loving and compassionate eyes. Because as Tim Keller writes, if we know we are sinners saved by grace alone, we will be both open and generous to the outcasts and the unlovely. A year or so ago, we had a woman visit Bethlehem. She came wondering if this sanctuary would be a place where she would be welcomed and accepted. Our worship leader at the time welcomed the congregation that morning by reminding them that this is a place for the broken. The woman later came to a visitor welcoming time and gratefully told us, I was looking for a church home, and you said the broken were welcome here. So I knew I could come to this church. That's part of what it means to lift our lamps beside the golden door. It's the reason this room is called a sanctuary. Because it's supposed to be a refuge. A place where our tired and lost and hurting community is welcomed. Just like God welcomed us. Just like Jesus welcomed the liars and the cheaters and the prostitutes to sit and eat with him. This is not a sanctuary for the healed. This is a sanctuary for the broken. This is not a sanctuary of judgment. This is a sanctuary of grace. This is not a sanctuary where perfection is expected. This is a sanctuary where scars are welcomed. 
This is not a sanctuary where we hide behind our masks and our veneers. This is a sanctuary where we lay bare our souls. Is that the story that we're telling? Is this a refuge for our community? Or is this a refuge from our community? Are you here today seeking help to live a life of love that glorifies God and works to build his kingdom? Or are you here for help to learn how to love your neighbor as yourself? Are you here with an attitude of joy and expectancy about what God is going to do and how you can become part of telling his story? Or are you here with an attitude of judgment, making sure that everyone around you complies with your own set of rules. Go and be my witnesses. Go and be my church. As Ed Stetzer writes, the most effective churches will be those that intentionally think like missionaries in their context and seek to love their neighbors as Jesus commanded. As we look at our community, are we filled with compassion for them? Do we look at our community as our personal mission field? Like that church in 1970 and 71, are we praying earnestly and continually for the mission field that is right at our doorstep? This is the story we get to be part of. This is the story that we are called to write. This is the privilege God has given us to see with eyes like his, to see our community with compassion, and to be brokenhearted for their brokenness. We get to live with them. We get to work with them. We get to build relationships with them. We get to love them. And we get to invite them to a better story than the ones that they're telling themselves. We get to show people Jesus. We get to show people the freedom that can only be found in Christ. The freedom that can only come when we are fully seen, fully known, and fully loved. We get to be the church. And it all begins with one. Each one of us investing in one other. Where are you intentionally investing in building relationships with someone in our community who needs a better story? Someone who needs a Jesus-centered story? Who are you inviting to coffee or a play date to take a walk with you or to go out to lunch? If you're not, then begin. Meet one. Engage with one. Build a relationship with one. Build credibility with one so that you can share a better story with one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am humbled to come before acknowledging how far we have gotten from your mission. How far we have come 
from being on mission in our community. I repent before you for our self-centeredness. I repent before you for our divisiveness over things that don't matter. I repent before you that the stories we are writing are not stories our community needs to hear. And I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that you would reignite within us a passion and a concern, a compassion and a care for the people around us who are lost and broken. I pray that this church would be a light that once again shines into its community. That instead of giving people directions to this church via Dairy Queen, people would give directions to Dairy Queen via this church. That the 50,000 square foot building and the life of Christ that is within it would dwarf our neighbors that we would be the place that our community comes to because they know that here they can find hope. That this would be a place that tells them better stories, the best 